You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, we have macro expert Luke Roman back on the show to talk about his thoughts on the current global situation in the fourth quarter of 2022. Luke and I cover a whole host of topics like the recent U.S. chip manufacturing decision that prevents U.S. employees from working in China, the Fed potentially being weaponized against Russia and China, his thoughts on the energy sector, loss of liquidity in the U.S. Treasury market, 7% 30-year fixed rate mortgage interest rates and what that might mean for the real estate market, and much, much more. You will not want to miss this conversation. So without further delay, here's my chat with Luke. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm back here with Luke Roman. Luke, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back, Preston. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, such a pleasure, man. I really look forward to these chats. I know we chat from time to time here and there, but uh, to get a full hour of your time is exciting for me. Let's start off with chip manufacturing. (laughs) So you wrote about this last week. This seems like a really big deal. The specific word that sticks out in my head is the word decapitation when describing this this, I mean, this is as new as last week. So walk us through what this is. I bet you there's a lot of people that don't even, are, are even aware of this. So give us the background and then give us your two cents on what's going on. Yeah. So it caught me by surprise as well. Someone pointed it out to me and I apologize for forgetting who that was that pointed it out. But the second I wrote it, uh, or the second I read it, excuse me, it, it immediately hit me as a really big deal. And there was a thread on Twitter last week by, I think, a gentleman named John Schneider, perhaps. But the point of the sanctions are that the Biden administration has actually upped the sanctions on Chinese semiconductor manufacturing, the Chinese semiconductor industry. My understanding is it's the mid and higher level type stuff. And I'm not the right guy to talk to on that sort of the nitty gritty of that. But the punchline is the thing that really made me drop my jaw when I read it. It is demanding, I believe, as of Friday of this week, the 21st of October, If you are an American citizen and you are working in the Chinese semiconductor industry, I don't know if it is the entire industry or just these mid and high level chips, AI, et cetera, type related stuff that can also be used in defense industries. If you're an American citizen and you're working in the Chinese semiconductor industry in these areas or abroad, I don't know, but you have a choice. You either continue working there, in which case you must give up your American citizenship or you must resign, I believe, by this Friday. And so it's apparently, it's reportedly leading to a mass exodus of American brain power and talent, engineering talent out of the Chinese semiconductor industry at these mid and high level. There's a bunch of other sanctions. You can find stuff about it. CSIS has a really good article about it. It's working on redirecting some of the high-end chip manufacturer, chip machines made by ASML and some of the others away from China. And it's the articles, one article in the FT says it, it, quoting an analyst, it's, it basically puts China back to the Stone Age. The Twitter thread that you reference refers to it as a decapitation of effective immediately of the mid and high end Chinese semiconductor industry. The bottom line is, to me, it's a really big deal. To me, it is reminiscent in some ways of 
the United States embargoing Japanese oil industry or oil imports, excuse me, in the summer of 1941, where it's a big, I think it's a very big deal. I think it's an escalation. It's an escalation or it's a retaliation for something we don't know about yet, but we're about to find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of how I'm thinking about it. And I don't know which it is, but re- either way, I think it's a really big deal. Yeah. The thread that I saw that you're alluding to was just like, like this is a really big deal for people that are close to the matter and kind of understand it. It's, it seems to be such a new event that I don't think people are really understanding the repercussions fully as to what it might mean. But I mean, what a, what a snap decision. Typically something like that would have months of lead time to, for people to make decisions and whatnot. But this was like literally the snap of a finger. Hey, you got till next week to figure out what the heck you're going to do. And wow. So we'll obviously keep an eye on that one. One of the most questions that, that I got when I you know, threw it out on Twitter that I was going to be talking with you today, people really wanted to hear more about this idea that you recently alluded to that the Fed is potentially being weaponized against Russia, China, maybe even Saudi Arabia. Explain this idea for people, like really kind of get into the granularity of what you're hitting at here. And you seem to suggest that this is your base case at this point, that, the, that it's being weaponized. So explain what you mean by this. Sure. So back, you go back in time to last year and when the Fed started talking about raising rates and, you know, even going back to before the election of 2020, we said, look, there's sort of a grid of four outcomes. You know, Treasury spends enough, Treasury doesn't spend enough, Fed monetizes enough, Fed doesn't monetize enough. And as you ran through those four grids or outcomes, basically, unless you stayed in the grid of Treasury spends enough, Fed monetizes enough, you're going to get a weak dollar and you're going to continue to get sort of economic growth and you're going to get 2021, you know, 11% mm-hmm. nominal GDP with 8% CPI, everything goes up, everyone, you know, party on Wayne, party on Garth. If you're in any of the other three areas, you're going to get strong dollar. The U.S. government is going to start crowding out global dollar markets. You're going to see dollar up, rates up, everything break. And that's what we've seen. And so when we came into this year, earlier this year, we started to see that happen. Back in April, I wrote a report. I think it was April 27th. The title of the report was Why We Think the Fed Will Pause with, or Will Stop Right. We Think the, stop, the Fed Will Stop Hiking Rates by the End of 3Q22. So September 30th, 2022, at that point in time, that was far off on, out, out in terms of the reservation, in terms of the you know, Overton's window of discussion of when the Fed was going to stop. And the reason we wrote that was tied back to that point, that grid of they're now doing things that are going to start breaking stuff. Mm-hmm. There's, they needed to let inflation run hot for a lot longer than one year to get debt to GDP down to 70 to 80 percent from 125 percent. And if they tried to tighten too soon, they were going to break things. So you were going to see this dollar up, rates up until things start falling apart. They started tightening. They had not gotten debt to GDP down. And so our view was that you were going to see, my best guesstimate back in April was that by the end of September, we were going to be seeing enough treasury market dysfunction mm-hmm. that they were going to get pulled back in. And I was looking at it strictly in an economic sense at that point. And I would say all things considered, pretty accurate. Were we, I mean, the U.S. Treasury Secretary last week said she's concerned about illiquidity in the Treasury market. We've seen the gilt market 
have issues, et cetera. So from a purely economic standpoint, not bad. However, if you would have asked me in April, Luke, what are the odds that what the Fed is doing is not purely about fighting inflation, or if it is about fighting inflation, that's actually code for we need to break oil, we need to break Russia, we need to break the world to break oil demand, to break Russia. I would have assigned a 5% chance to that maybe. So yeah. oh, maybe that's a tail risk. What has proceeded with sort of each passing month, and in particular, after August, where we saw inflation expectations roll over, where we saw oil roll over, where we saw the treasury market, the gilt market, debt markets, the mortgage market, all these markets that the Fed has quickly jumped in to reverse themselves, you know, the data get weaker. The Fed has quickly jumped in, in with almost Pavlovian response to with more liquidity in the post-GFC era. Ever since 08, they hop to it and they, they start fixing these things. And I couldn't help but notice they're not jumping in to fix it. And people say, well, it, it's just inflation. Well, inflation expectations are rolling. You can see the inflation data when you extend it out and the comps start to get easier, the base effect goes away. You can see, you can have some idea what their preferred metrics are going to be and it's coming down fast. And so the more they didn't respond the way they had for the prior 14 years to these things starting to break in the way they are, the more in my own mind, I was thinking, well, maybe it's not a 5% chance there. This is about weaponizing the dollar and weapon uh, uh, against oil and against Russia. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20. And then really post August, where again, you saw this rollover in inflation expectations, you saw this rollover in the data, you saw the rollover in oil, you sort of saw all these boxes that you could check to say, okay. And they said, no, we're going to do another 75. That's when it really, I would say, you know, if, if, if there was a, a chart showing, you know, Luke's estimate of what the Fed is really doing is being weaponized against Russia. It would have gone, you know, maybe at that point it was up to 10, 15%, 25% chance. I think it went 30, 40, 50. And I think now we're really at this level where it is my base case. I think it's 50, 60, 70% shot. I think that that's what's going on here because, in my view, when you see things breaking the way they're breaking in foreign sovereigns, it's only a matter of time till it comes back. When you see the treasury market, act, market acting the way it is, these are things they would respond to in the past, and they simply haven't. And so that's why, to me, I think it's a, I, I think there's a real shot that the pivot ain't coming because, yes, they did break things the way they did them. They broke on my time horizon, but what I thought was a 5% chance that they were being weaponized against Russia might be way higher. I don't know that uh, the weaponization of it is how I particularly see it. Let me, let me kind of explain my vantage point. So I'm just looking at it. And the inflation prints that just keep coming in here in the US, over in Europe, I mean, it's relentless. Like they haven't seen any type of move down that is showing any type of outside of the standard volatility that, that got us to where we're at, that a top has been put in on inflation. And I think when they're looking at all the factors that are at play, they know that if they reverse course without any type of indication that they've broken through that volatility range that brought us to where we're at, that if they step into the market and, and start more QE and start printing more, I just can't even imagine what that would do to the bond market. Like 
it would just be an unbelievable sell-off of epic proportions because anybody, anybody sitting on a bond desk today would look at that and say, my God, we're at 8% or if you're over in Europe, we're at 10% plus inflation. And they just, they just started printing more, right? Like it's, and I think, I do think that these central bankers have an appreciation for how close to the end game they are, if, if not in the end game that they know this, this is it. Like they have to do something to break inflation, to hopefully be able to go back to QE as it's kind of on its way down and, and kind of make the whole thing look like it was under control <laughs> the whole time. Right. And so I don't see any of that being quote unquote weaponized. I see that as they're so desperate, insanely desperate to create some sort of deflation and, and, and tame these inflationary prints down so that they can get to the next thing, which is more QE, which we all know where that leads in the long run. But I, I don't know if I, if I, don't, I just don't know if I buy that they're, they're doing it in a manner to, to battle Russia. I think they're just in a, I think they're in a battle to, to, to save their own relevance. Like you, you see all these headlines with Powell right and how he's he's going to be the volker that's going to save everything right like it almost <laughs> seems like it's much simpler than than that w would you agree or or do you think that i'm i'm simplifying it and i don't no, understand no, the complexity? It, i mean it, you know when you to me i think there is an element of defense of what i would call de-dollarization of global energy markets where you've seen china continue to buy Russian energy in their own currency. You continue to see India talk about buying oil in their own currency. Some of it could, I guess, just be the, I'm going to try to be gentle. I really, like when you come back to it and say, all right, well, we need to, what's driving the inflation in Europe? It's all energy. It's mm -hmm. all energy. It's energy and money printing. And yeah, which I, I which think, at the heart of it, Luke, is all fiscal related and just really bad strategic energy policies for, for decades, right? Like the fact that they, that they have been consuming way in excess of the tax receipts and the fact that they had these idiotic policies as, with respect to energy is what has put them there. And now they're, they're begging the central banks to just you know, save them, save them from their, from their decisions that brought them to this point. So if we're like looking at the core, that's the core, right? Or is there, is there something even further upstream than that? Do you think? Well, I think it's core. The other thing I would say that has really changed my view toward the weaponization has been everything that has happened in the weaponization of the fed and these rate hikes has been the escalations we've seen in what I would call economic war in the last two, three weeks, right? So the Fed's doing what they're doing. They're fighting inflation. It's the wrong thing to do. If you want to get inflation down, it's driven by energy. You need to spend more. You need to incent more production. You need to do the exact opposite. So they're doing, they're doing the wrong thing, really. When you think about it from that point, they're, they're doing the wrong thing. You, the U.S. shale industry is interest rate sensitive. If you want to get oil prices down and fight Russia, the last thing you should be doing is raising interest rates. A little bit of a separate discussion. Not to even um, mention the capping of the of the prices, right? Yeah, That's all. So it's that, totally so. Totally so. <laughs> but I think when I the the, the part of the ev evolution of this weaponization thought process, when I look at whoever blew up the Nord Stream pipelines, that mm -hmm. sabotage that mm -hmm. caught my attention. That mm -hmm. was a burning the boats moment for Europe. 
And I can make a credible case that NATO aligned people did it. I can make a credible case that the Russians did it. I can make a credible case the Ukrainians did it. In the end, it doesn't really matter who did it. It's a huge, there, there's, that to me was a signal that there's a warfare co- you know, component. That was signal number one. Signal number two was sanctioning the, the surprising aggressiveness of these Chinese sanctions. You, to your point, like that was like a bomb and it w- was not messing around. You work for them, you are no longer an American citizen. Hmm. I was like, whoa. So when you, I see that and then I see OPEC cut production the yes. way they did. And then I see the American response the way they did, where you have high level national security Congress people talking about passing the NOPEC Act, talking about changing the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi that has been in place for 80 years. That, to me, when I put all those things together, when I layer that onto the rate, that's where I would say between the change in the, because with what was happening in markets, yeah, the core CPI number still, but you can see where it's, and, and maybe it's just dogma. Maybe they're just idiots. It's, it's entirely possible. <laughs> It's, 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 you know, what's the phrase, you know, don't ascribe to, to motive, you what you can ascribe it. to stupidity. You right? just solved it. You just solved it. <laughs> right. But it's these other things overlaid on top of it. These economic war and aspects that I think when I look at it, and then some of it's just a little bit of a sort of a, a you know, a feel right of like, Hey, we, we got to get oil down to beat Putin. We got to, you know, he's weaponizing oil. He's weaponizing oil. He's weaponizing oil. Well, what can we do? You weaponize the dollar, weaponize the dollar. Well, how do you weaponize the dollar? You raise rates. Weapon and of choice. What's that? It's been the weapon of choice. It's been the weapon of choice. And, you know, the, the gambit was we're going to raise rates and we're going to knock down oil and we're going to break the world and everyone's going to buy treasuries and we're going to hyperinflate the ruble. And, you know, they didn't hyperinflate the ruble. The ruble was defended effectively because Russians knew it was coming because we've done it over and over. And, they had the ability to do that. And objectively, the oil market is where it was in February and the treasury market's gotten hammered. And so like, it hasn't worked mm-hmm. relative to expectations. And I think that's part of it too, where when you are an empire and you're used to running this playbook and you run it and it blows up in your face, mm-hmm. the oil market didn't blow up, the treasury market blew up. I think there is an element of okay, well, we're in for a penny, we're in for a pound, right? We're, we're getting overrun, bomb inside the wire, weaponize it, like, like just, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. You know, so it's, that's, that's really the genesis of it, is just watching them, watching them re- not react to some of these sovereign markets combined with the, you know, the economic warfare things that have happened in the last three weeks. You know, so we'll see. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So we've seen the gas prices come down. We've seen the natural gas prices come down. But the one that's, that's kind of interesting is the diesel prices. I was with my son driving in the car just the other day, and I looked out, and the, the disparity between gas prices and diesel prices are enormous here, at least where, where I live. It almost seems like there's a refinery bottleneck or something that's going on on the diesel side. And when we think about the cost of everything being super dependent on diesel, whether it's tractors, tractor trailers, any type of large industrial manufacturing type thing that, that requires diesel fuel, this seems like it's a big deal. And it doesn't seem like the SPR, I mean, they are aggressively going after the release of the SPR. It doesn't seem like that's necessarily controlling lever on diesel prices. So I don't know if you're an expert in this, but what are some of your thoughts on, on that and also thoughts on the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Yeah, 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 sure, sure. So I think it is a refinery issue. I would defer to other people. I did see today the U.S. is down, I think, to a 25-day supply of diesel, which is... That's crazy. If, if it's me and I know that grocery stores take delivery from diesel-fueled trucks and grocery stores only have three days of food, best case, in good times at normal throughput rates, 
you're not you're not the it's scary yet, but you you can see scary from here oh. in terms of the implications. So when you and like I said, I think it's a refinery issue, but I'm not the right person to talk to on all those logistics. When you marry that with with the SPR, when you marry that with an article from two days ago that I think was in the journal that New England is looking at possible shortages of natural gas this winter, so they'll have to shut down. It starts setting up for very interesting and very contra-narrative outcome, right? If we're looking at what has transpired this year, it is ultimately a battle between energy Mm -hmm. and Western sovereign debt, which is the real value here. And Putin says it's energy and the West says it's sovereign debt. And the U.S. in particular said treasuries, treasuries, treasuries. Putin six months ago had no leverage. I, everyone told me he had no leverage. Even today, I can't get on any Twitter mainstream website and all I get is how bad Russia's getting their ass kicked. And maybe they are on the battlefield. I don't know. Yeah. But I also know at U.S. diesel inventories are at all-time lows. I know one of the most populous regions of the United States are looking at much more expensive gas because they need to compete with the Europeans for natural gas on LNG, global LNG markets, and they might not be able to get enough. And I can see this SPR. We did a chart. I may have sent it to you in terms of just if we think about markets, tell us what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. If this is a battle between energy and sure. Western sovereign debt, right? This Bretton Woods three concept that Zoltan Pozar talked about that some people agree with, some people don't. This what's the primacy? What's the what's the what's the king? Is it king treasury or king oil? Is it king energy? And we did a chart that shows UK gilts, you know, inverted UK gilt yields, inverted ten year US Treasury yields, just for effect. Not you know, you could do the price, but it's just for effect. The US SPR inventories. And the price of oil. And that's our scoreboard. Who's winning, right? You can yeah. we can talk of who's winning, who's the economic war, who's winning? And the answer is energy's winning. Mm-hmm. Gilts have gotten killed. Treasuries have gotten killed. Oil's basically flat from, from the day they invaded. It's up a little bit. And that's what the US, having run its SPR down to the lowest levels in 40, 40 years. And that can't be run down to zero. I don't know how much further it can be run down, but it can't be run down to zero because no one knows at the bottom is at the bottom of these giant salt caverns. It's it's likely sludge of some description and, and probably unusable. And and no one knows how far up the sludge goes. So when you talk about the diesel thing, we talk about the natural gas thing. I, I look at it from two things. Number one, again, setting the battlefield stuff aside, the economic stuff is not going well. We're not winning. That the the sovereign debt side is not winning. Energy is winning, number one which suggests the policy response shouldn't be, you know, Biden getting angry and talking about, you know, the refiners cutting prices. It should be industrial policy, Fed funded, print the money and build the infrastructure and screw inflation. Let it go. Who cares? Screw the bondholders. That's not been the response. The second derivative thought is I feel bad for Europe. Because these European leaders, especially the Atlanticist ones, I kind of shake my head and I think they must have never read American history because how do they think this is going to go? Do they really think that with the Northeast running tight on LNG and with the U.S. running tight on diesel, we've already heard it floated out. Well, we're not going to do the export ban. We're not going to do the export ban. Why do you think that's being floated out? It, has it dawned on Europe yet why that's being floated out? It's being floated out because that's what we're going to do this winter. Yeah. Push comes to shove, 
Like, like go back, read the books about 1971. It's our currency. It's your problem. It's our energy. It's your problem. You're cold. Sorry, you made a bad choice. And that's harsh. And to me, it has huge implications for the euro. It has huge implications for the pound, has huge implications for markets. Because look, I mean, yeah, is it going to send the dollar up if, if we do that? Absolutely it is. Is that going to be good for markets? No. Is it going to be good for the treasury market? No. Is it going to be good for energy? Yes. And so we're sort of, until we get some adults in the room that say, listen, if we want sovereign debt to win against energy, we need to kill sovereign debt, period, paradoxically. We need an adult to come out and say, eh, all right, we're going to print $2 trillion this year. And yeah, we're going to do the 50. It's not $50 billion for semiconductors. It's $500 billion for semiconductors. And the Fed's monetizing it all at 2%. And it's a trillion five for energy, infrastructure, EMP, all of it. And we're printing it all. Fed's going to print it all. That's what has to happen here. Or and, else. And, then, and then you're not even talking about the lag of oh, implementing all that. It takes capital. a long time. Oh my it gosh. Takes, yeah. This needed time. to happen five years ago. Yeah. 10 years ago. Yes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're years from that even becoming operable. I, you got a quote that you recently posted in your newsletter that I found really helpful to what you were just talking about. And this was from Credit Suisse. Zoltan, instead of a Volcker moment, we got a Putin moment and we basically have war and out of this war, something will also emerge out of this. I think Bretton Woods three that I started to kind of develop and run with is a world where we are again going to go back to a commodity backed money where gold once again is going to play a big role and not just gold, but I think all forms of commodities. And so you're making the, the strong case for energy, whether it's LNG whether it's just nat, nat gas that's not been liquefied, oil, diesel, you name it. Well, let's go, it goes back to a point, you know, we've, we've you know, my, my, my and, and Brent, Johnson's, Brent Johnson's famous interactions on the dollar. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure you can Google search and find me saying at some point in the last two years, like, yeah, could the dollar go to 160 or 200? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the ironic thing is, is there will be gas shortages. You will be waiting in your car in a gasoline shortage. And I remember people on Twitter going, how could that be? And yet here we are with the DXY at 113 as we talk. Yeah. And we're talking about the Northeast running out of natural gas. And we're talking about diesel down to 25 days. And you, you, that's with Dixie at 113. At 150? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't think people have thought through what that implies. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, the dollar's going to be strong. And you're going to need a shotgun to sit in your car with you while you pump your gas if the gas is delivered that day. Holy moly. So let's, let's go to the next number five. All I have, <laughs> all I have listed is the most powerful buyers in us treasuries are bailing all at once. And that's all I wrote. So <laughs> take it away, Luke. <laughs> yeah, there was a great, it was a, a, you know, it, it's something we've been talking about for a while, which has been three biggest marginal buyers of treasuries over the last, I guess, really eight years in different sequencing has been in particular since, since 2017 really has been U S banks, foreign central banks and the fed and foreign central banks. Like they left in 2014 by and large fed and U S banks largely picked up the slack. And when they don't, the dollar goes up a lot and something breaks and then they come back. 
And they're gone now between the Fed, obviously, for all the reasons everybody knows. And and banks, there are regulatory constraints to their balance sheet in terms of what they can, how how much, how many treasuries they can own, because for regulatory purposes, a treasury counts as against that regulatory score. And again, I'm not the right guy to talk to about how to calculate that, et cetera. But suffice it to say, there's a balance sheet constraint there. So Mm -hmm. they can't buy as many. And certainly they can't buy what is needed to, particularly with the Fed adding to the issuance. And so you have seen in the recent months a big uptick in private, foreign private buying, which is encouraging. And I would put an asterisk next to it because it's the two there. I think it was 170 billion in toll in, in foreign buying in August. And it was the two biggest buyers were the UK and the Cayman Islands which is hedge funds and hedge funds. And so th- again, that's fine. But when you have gone from borrowing from foreign central banks who are very price insensitive and, and, and can take losses, do not mark to market, they buy for political reasons as much as anything. And then you move down to foreign, ins- pri- foreign private insurers and pension funds, and they are marginally more price sensitive than central banks, but still very long dated, et cetera, et cetera. By the time you get down to the hedge funds who are financing you, they are fickle creditors and they are very price sensitive and they don't like to lose money. So that sets you up in a situation where if your marginal creditors are too many hedge funds, then you know you see the 10-year treasury, you'll start to trade like hedge funds are trading it, which yeah. take a look back over the last, you know, people saying treasury vols up, why is treasury vol? Well, probably partly because a lot of hedge funds buying it. Yeah. And you've had a whole year of just getting obliterated. So you're getting obliterated. Yeah. You can't stand in like you don't. I mean, I saw last week that marked to market, the Fed would take 720 billion has lost 720 billion year to date on their bond portfolio. There's no hedge. Like, like what that is like, I, that's probably, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but I would suspect that's probably close to as big as the entire hedge fund industry. Like mm-hmm. they can't take that. Right. So yeah. they, they, they have shareholders or they have, they have general partners. They, 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 they have to make money. So yeah, you've got this situation where will the treasuries get bought? Of course they'll get bought at, at a price. Of course. The problem is, is not, will they get bought at a price? The problem is that price can the U S government afford that price? <laughs> yeah, the and the answer price, is no. The price correlates to a yield. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Okay. So this one's going to be fun. Which one of these two do you think is going to happen first? Loss of liquidity in the U.S. Treasury market or unemployment that catches the Fed's attention that they have to do something? Oh, it's a Treasury market. It's a Treasury market. This is a weird cycle. And it's, it's something I had thought about ahead of it. And, and again, it's one of these things where it's like, okay, yeah, I think this is really happening. I think it's the Treasury market already has an issue and it's going to keep getting worse. And it's going to keep getting worse almost without fail for a number of things we've talked about already, unless the Fed steps in with more QE. But I say the the thing that might be the weirdest thing about this cycle has been the contrary behavior of American boomers, right? If you ask almost any theoretician out there, academic, old people, are they inflationary or deflationary? And the answer is almost without fail, they're deflationary. They're past the peak in their spending. Their peak spending's in the 40, 45, and then they just, their deflationary spending, you know. And the difference is that the boomers are extraordinarily inflationary. 
Mm-hmm. And the reason they're extraordinarily inflationary is sort of a historically unique reason, which is if you go back as of last summer, the boomers, according to the Wall Street Journal, had $35 trillion in net assets. And how they acquired those net assets was in no small part policy that really began being implemented in the 70s and definitely in the 80s was U.S. government deficits were sterilized in asset markets by virtue of U.S. government policies to defer compensation into asset markets, right? So when you think about the average baby boomer, when you say they made whatever, for 40 years, 35 years from 1980 to 2015, they made X dollars and the U.S. government gave them an incentive where they could take 15% of those X dollars that they would have made in cash comp and spent into the economy, generating CPI inflation, and instead put it into the asset markets. We'll give you a tax break. You, you, you can take it off your taxes, it will grow tax-free, and then we'll tax you at the back end. IRA, same thing, four or three Bs. It's all been one giant exercise in sterilizing U.S. government deficits in the asset markets. And then we don't count asset inflation as inflation. Right. That's that was that was inflation. Yeah. It was just deficits going to the yeah. So these boomers fast forward 40 years, these boomers have thirty five trillion dollars net assets. And then you scare them that they're going to die like way sooner than they thought. So now you've got thirty five trillion in assets mm-hmm. and a generation that like that is putting on the biggest YOLO trade in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. They're like, I might die in two years. Let's get on a plane. Let's go to a restaurant. Let's order a steak. Let's go, you know, fix the house. Let's fix the house again. I don't like that deck. Rip it down. My kids need a house. Let's get them a house. Let's get that kid a house. Let's. And so this, you, when you hear, oh, well, it's services inflation. Well, there's $35 trillion trying to cram itself out of the asset markets into the real economy by virtue of this YOLO trade. I think a little bit of it too is when you look at the the surge that we had in asset prices following COVID, the pace at which that took place is the equivalent of somebody finding $100 on the street and they're like, all right, well, I didn't have this $100, so now I can go do whatever and I'm going to go spend it. I think you have a little bit of that still taking place because it was such a windfall in such a short amount of time. And they were the ones sitting on all the assets. It definitely wasn't the money. Yeah. Yeah. And the first time I got a, like I had written a bit about this, this wealth effect dynamic throughout my, my writing going back eight years. But the first time I had a sense that the fed had knew it was a problem was back in February of this year when you had Zoltan and then the credit Suisse. And then you had Bill Dudley, the former New York fed president, both say we need to crash stocks to get inflation down. Mm -hmm. It was like, "Ah, they know, they know that's what's causing it. And so I think that's why it's this weird cycle. So, you know, the first question is in treasury market problems or unemployment first, well, that's easy. It's treasury market. But I think there's an important corollary to this, which is there is a moment coming. There is an air pocket coming of employment, GDP, spending. And I don't know what month it's coming, but it's probably in the December or you know third week of January. Boomers are going to spend more money on, on Christmas. We're all going to spend money on Christmas. And if this fourth quarter goes the way I think it will, if the Fed doesn't step in with QE, they're all going to get their statements and go, stop yeah. spending. Like, not, not, not slow spending, like, stop 
now. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing a little bit of it. I think people are comforting themselves that it's been a transition from goods to services. Mm-hmm. And we've had this huge fall off in, in, in good sales and retail and this inventory buildup and order cancellations. And I think it's going to, I think unless the fed comes in and basically regooses this whole thing in the fourth quarter, which I don't, I don't think is happening now. I think we're going to get this air pocket in the first quarter of where it's just like, like the world stops because boomers are going to go, Oh God. Yeah. I'm not as afraid of dying. And at any rate, if I, if I keep this up, like, you know, well, I think you've also run seen, out of money. you've also seen a little bit where the housing market had gone up so much in such a short amount of time that even if people didn't have any type of equity in the house prior to that move, as soon as that move happened, they had for, for a lot of them that had no savings, they had a significant amount of money in, in the equity of that house. And we're seeing that in refis. You're seeing the number of refis and people tapping into the equity of their house, even though they're taking on higher rates. They're tapping into that, into that buying power of the house and tapping into the equity at, from what I, what I think I remember seeing on Twitter, through some different charts, like at an unprecedented rate as far as some of these people refining their house. And, and you would think that that wouldn't be the case because the rates are higher, but it's, it's been a surprise. And everyone's like, huh, that doesn't make any sense. But I think it's, they're seeing $100,000 there that they've never been able to save. And they're saying, my God, I could go put on the new deck or I could go do whatever because I now have this equity in the house. And the equity's and, not there, of course, but yeah, exactly. Not with rates having done, but you know, gone from two and three quarters Bingo. to seven and a half. The, the equity's not there, mark the market. Yes. But hey, get which again speaks to this whole like, okay, I'm going to put the deck on, and then it's like, hey, let's move, and then they're going to go, okay, well, we're going to lose all that money on this, and we're going to get a small like. It's just going to stop. Yeah, we're downgrading and, by like we're getting half as much house. Yeah, for twice uh, as much money or twenty five percent more money. Yeah, because yeah. we're being forced to move for a new job or whatever. Yeah. 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 I I think some of this stuff just takes time to kind of set in. And And that's the other part of the reason why I think partly the Fed is weaponizing is is they know this. Like they you can go, you know, Google, you know, long and variable lags on monetary policy and you'll find, you know, sixteen thousand things where it's like, you know. Hey, yeah, they, uh, monetary policy works on a leg. Like they know this. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, th- I do think it's probably partly a little bit of an ego thing. I mean, Harold Malmgren had a great tweet earlier this year where inferring that, you know, like you said, like that Powell didn't want to be the next Arthur Burns, that he was embarrassed by how wrong he was. And, you know, he's going to be wrong again. Oh, his wait, isn't <laughs> uh, I can only imagine what the books are going to write on. Seven yeah, point. as of today for a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. (laughs) And you look at what the yen, like, like I put up a chart on Twitter yesterday, you look at yen dollar and the 10 year treasury yield and they've been very tight. Like it's saying it's going to five, the 10 years going to five. Yeah. Like 722 is with the 10 year at four. Yeah. 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 like, Like you start looking at like situations in this country where we could be, you know, eight and a half. Eight and a half, nine percent mortgages and nine percent gasoline. Like, yeah. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree. 
expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. There's states that aren't set up to work with those two combinations. And, and you're not talking like next year. You're talking like in short order based on the, the speed of the sell off that's happening. Speed of the, I'm talking, oh yeah, like you could have, yeah. you could have mortgage rates at eight and a half in a month. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's ultimately where this is going. I think, I think we're going to see the 10 year treasury go from four to six in three weeks, four weeks at some the, point this fall or this, this, this fourth quarter. The three month, I'm looking at the chart right now. The three month yield is at 4% right now. The 30 year is at 4.1. 
That is crazy. I'm curious what you what your thoughts are. So I've I've had a lot of people tell me that when the when the three month exceeds the ten the ten year, which the ten year is at four point one four, it's only it's slightly better than the thirty year. I mean, this whole thing is jacked. But uh, you're only thirteen basis points of the three month exceeding the yield on the ten year, and and I've had a lot of people tell me that that's a that is a really strong signal to the Fed that they have totally overdone it. And it's time to stop the hikes if the three month is exceeding the tenure. Is this different? Is this situation different for them because inflation is so still gangbusters high relative to these yields that that like rules of thumb like that don't even apply? It's a good question. I don't know. Because I mean, when you think about it, if they're still, if they still, for me personally, like anytime I'm doing momentum. I'm looking at that volatility range of whatever I'm tracking. So if I'm looking at the 10-year and I'm looking at the volatility of the sell-off or the bid, I'm saying, hey, this is not, the market is not telling me that there's a change if I'm not seeing a breakout of that volatility range that, that it's in. And when we look at inflation, like nothing is suggesting that there has been a reversal. If you're looking just at the at the inflation right. prints. Now, if you look at all these other leading indicators, I think a lot of people would tell you like this thing is is grossly transitioning to a recession well, or worse. Where I so I I don't know when I say I don't know if the yield curve conversation changes with the higher inflation. I I don't think so, but what I feel very strongly is that if we have a recession next year, let's say we just have a plain vanilla recession. I love how you said if. And <laughs> <laughs> the 1% chance we don't have a plain vanilla, plain vanilla recession next year. And that it actually does impact inflation across the economy, which I, I, think, I think it should. This is what I think the policymakers and what I think the bond markets, especially at the long end, may be hinting at that most people, I think, still don't get. Plain vanilla recession historically has been 20% decline in tax receipts. That's just like plain vanilla, yawn, oops, GDP's down, then we go back up. This is not like the system's collapsing like in 20 or 08, which are the last two of the last two recessions. 20% decline in receipts. So what is that in dollar terms? For just so people can understand. Uh, dollar terms, right? So, so it, it's $900 billion for round math from last year. So that's the thing that nobody talks about. It's like, oh, we had this bubble. We had this bubble. We had this bubble. Well, guess what else you had a bubble in? You had a bubble in tax receipts. It's yeah. unbelievable. They were up 40%. Yeah. Because it's all tied to asset prices. Yeah. So not just the asset price capital gains, but but incomes, right? As stock options are all taxed in ordinary income. Okay. so. It's not going to be no, it's not going to be no 20%. It's probably not, but let's just, just just to be conservative, to make the point that this is the thing. I don't think bond market, most people in the bond market are still paying attention to. And and most investors, plain vanilla recession, 20% decline in tax receipts. Social security just came out and said they're doing a, I think it's a 9% 9%, for next year. Yep. Okay. Let's apply that 9% to Medicare, Medicaid, health and human services. Cause that's actually not far off that, that number chugs ahead at six to 9% almost every year. So let's just say it's nine across entitlements, which is social security and, and or in to- total entitlements and health and human services. So I'm applying that to social security, Medicare, Medicaid, health and human services, 9% inflation, no enrollment growth. 
mind you, no enrollment growth with however many millions of boomers are going to enroll more. So again, conservative. 20% decline in receipts, 9% COLA across. You're looking at just entitlements in the United States being around 85 to 90% of tax receipts next year. Yeah. Now, Apply the five for uh, apply the five percent terminal discount rate that everyone's getting. Oh, it's five, it's five and a quarter, it's four and five percent, thirty-one trillion in debt, pro forma is a trillion five. Trillion five is on that twenty percent decline. Golly, it's it's forty percent. It's forty percent of tax receipts. Do you know what forty percent of tax of just the interest is? That's an emerging market. That's like that's like banana republic territory. Yeah. So now it's 40% interest pro forma and with no enrollment growth and plain vanilla recession, 85% entitlements. You're done. Now, because we're the reserve currency, because you have the Euro dollar system, because people say, oh, you're saying that dollar's dying. No, I'm saying that it's going to be 125% of tax receipts or interest like obligations. Whether the dollar dies or not, falls or not, because again, I don't put, want to be a hyperbolic, whether the dollar falls or not is dependent entirely on if the Fed finances that or not. It goes back to that original grid. 125% of tax receipts on, in, on interest expense, like items, in a recession, a plain vanilla recession, if the Fed does not print the money, if you liked the last three months, dollar up, treasury yields up every friggin' day, you're going to love next year because the dollar's just going to keep going up and treasury yields are going to find where the buyer is. And the higher they go, the more that, that 125 is going to yeah, go to 126, 128, 130, 135. And at some point in that process, people are going to go, the U.S. is broke. Yeah, I need to own gold and not like the paper stuff. I need to own physical now. And you're going to see a separation where you've already seen it. GLD has been rising against TLT all year. Yeah, gold's down and it sucks. And we'll, but it's been rising against it all year. It's going to start going up nominally with rates going up big at some point in that process. And Bitcoin probably does really well too. And this is why you got to have yield curve control because you've got to stop that bleeding of the interest expense. I'm curious, have you ever done, you know, I mean, I know that was real haphazard, but the numbers are are real easy to kind of like demonstrate how out of control and how much of a spiral you're in. Have you done that for the UK? Have you done that for other nation states over in the EU? I'm assuming they're in the exact same scenario as, as what you just described here in the U.S. I've looked at it, but not nearly the depth. And the short answer is, yeah, the Western, Western social democracies, broadly speaking, are in roughly the same positions. And I just don't know the sensitivities. I do know that their energy positions are way worse than ours. Yeah. And they don't have the reserve currency. So like, like if it's, they're going to do the same thing. And that's part of why you're going to see yields go up and up and up. Because when it comes to, do I want to hold treasuries or do I want to freeze? It's a very, very easy decision. And if they're doing, and if they are doing that because they're not the reserve currency and they're debasing their currencies, they're mm-hmm. just making the dollar because it's all in relative terms when you're talking about fiat currency, it's just making the dollar that much stronger. And right. this is why I've, I said, is like, yeah, the dollar go to 150 or 200, but you're not going to like waiting in line with a shotgun to fill up the gasoline station. Yeah. That's what's happened. That's what happens at that. I mean, if, I mean, is the Northeast the United States going to be getting their share of natural gas for winter 23, 24 in that scenario where Europe and Japan, or, or does it come down to who has the Navy to direct it? And, you know, and if that's the case, like, like we're not even in markets anymore. Like it, yeah. we're now like, 
Yeah. That's where we are in this whole game. Like it is. And to me, you know, you go back, I'm sure we talked in either, you know, March or April. And I just said, I don't think Western policymakers understand what they got themselves into. They thought they had all the leverage and they didn't. They don't. Yeah. And they, and, and it's the, 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 the fundamental error that they all made was they looked at GDP and they said, oh, Russia's only the size of Indiana, Ohio, whatever that is, right? Italy. So what? It's like a money ball thing, right? Well, that guy, you know, he only hits 220. Yeah, well, he walks. You know, his on-base percentage is 500. Walks as good as a hit. Same thing here. Russia produces whatever it is, 10 million barrels of oil a day. Okay. The, the value of an oil, the value, everyone did it on price of oil. 80 times of 10 million barrels a day times 365 days. Oh, Russia's GDP. They're just a gas station. John McCain. It's a country masquerading or a gas station masquerading as a country. No, 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 no. The value of oil is there's 25,000 man hours of work contained in one barrel of oil. The value of a man hour work is 20, is 20 bucks an hour just for easy math. Every barrel of oil has a value of $500,000 per barrel. And Russia produces 10 million barrels a day. And, and these people thought they could strip 10 million barrels a day, a 500,000 of value a barrel out and bad things wouldn't happen. Explain what you mean by that number you just said per barrel. So if you look at the amount of work, the amount of energy contained in a barrel, it has yes. been estimated at 25,000 man hours of work. And the problem is, is that Western policymakers, when they decided to pick this fight, to get involved in this fight, they said, oh, well, it's not that bad. Run the GDP. They're 10 million barrels a day times $80 a barrel. Okay, well, it'll hurt a little bit, but it'll be fine. The oil will go to 120 and that'll have, it'll impact GDP in Europe by 1.2% and output will fall 0.6% and it will hurt, but it'll be good. No, no, no. You started from a wrong first principle. The first principle is 25,000 man hours per barrel, $20 of value per man hour, $500,000 per barrel is the value of oil, not the price, the value. And you picked a fight with that. You decided to fight that. It's, it's a classic it's a bad idea. You know, Luke, it, it, really kind of goes to a lot of the stuff we talk about in Bitcoin when we talk about first principles. And I recently interviewed Michael and he was talking about how when the money isn't backed by energy, then it's just a coupon. And yes. what, you're, what you're getting at is almost that exact idea with policymakers all around the world right now. And they're looking at it and they're like, well, we'll just, we'll just print, we'll just create digital, <laughs> we'll, we'll create digital <laughs> units on our ledgers and we'll force them to accept these these digital nothings for the actual work that somebody had to perform to extract that out of the ground and that person who's extracting it out of the ground or, or doing whatever in order to to put that into your gas tank all the work that's required to put that into your gas tank we're just going to pay them with fake made up paper promises and coupons and like you had so eloquently described when this entire war kicked off, I, I remember the conversation like it was yesterday, Luke. You went into nitty gritty detail ex explaining exactly this idea, but I don't think it was real to people until now. I think it's becoming, it's starting to become very evident and very real as to what you mean by that exchange of physical goods for fake paper promise. That's the scariest thing about what we're in. And I, I think people are starting to see the problem. But to me, why it's so scary is there is a fundamental mismatch. There's a fundamental 
disagreement. And and Putin actually gave a speech in June, and it was not covered well here, of course, but he said something along the lines of they are printing, they're devaluing, there's seven and a half trillion NFX reserves that are devaluing by eight to 10% per year. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole fundamental argument of gold, Bitcoin, right? Basically, he is pointing out that you're asking me to sell my oil for paper that is going to fall again in oil terms by eight to 10% per year. Mm-hmm. And he can't do that because his country will collapse. He will collapse. His country will collapse. His people will starve. That is a fundamental red line. Cannot do it. OPEC has the same problem, which is why they sided, quote unquote, sided with Russia, as our government said. Is they Again, they cannot sell finite oil production for paper that is falling in oil terms yeah. at 8 to 10% per year as it has. And that's you know debt issuance. That's the price of oil you you are going to need, oil's going to have to rise by 8 to 10% per year for the foreseeable future because of peak cheap energy, right? To, to, to develop the energy you need to sustain the debt, you're going to need prices to rise because we're out of the cheap stuff. We need to keep having oil. But you can't have oil producers, you can't pay them in paper that falls 8 to 10% per year against their energy output. They're just better keeping the energy on the ground. Yeah. On the other side, the Western sovereigns are so indebted that they absolutely cannot survive if they don't trade paper that falls eight to 10% in energy terms for energy. They blow up. We're watching it happen in our very, before our very eyes empirically. So what's so scary is you have this nuclear armed energy power that cannot afford to take it. And this nuclear armed powers that can't afford to not do this deal, the negative negative real rates in energy terms. And it's really, you know, an, an unstoppable for an, an unstoppable object against an immovable force. I mean, you're really when this breaks, it isn't going to be like a little move. I mean, these are very tense tectonic plates. When they slip, it's we're starting to maybe see signs of that, but it's not going to be like, oh, well, inflation's going to go up a little bit. No, they're printing friggin' money to pay for energy. Like, you know, PPI in Germany is what forty percent. Like, insane. That's, that's insane. Like, and now you've burned the boats. Whoever did it, burned the boats. As I say, it could have been the Russians. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, the, the, you know it's, that screws Europe and the Americans way more than it screws the Russians. Yeah, I think that's it could the, be the best, Chinese. That's the best way to describe it. Whoever did it, they, they were burning the boats. They, yeah. they wanted this to, yeah. So Michael Saylor recently tweeted something out. He just said, the inflation won't end until the war, until the wars end. I'm assuming you agree with that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. War is very inflationary. Let's, t- let's quickly talk, talk about Japan. When I'm looking at the treasury market over there, it looks like back in June, you could see that they were really struggling to keep their yield curve control under wraps. The yen has just been getting crushed. And as of recently, Let's see here. September, you started seeing the yields kind of break out to the, the market was selling off and the yields were breaking out to levels that they hadn't seen in years. Right now in October, 19 October, we're seeing an all-time high in the yields, which means the sell-off is, is most aggressive. It seems like their yield curve control is being adjusted so that the, the <laughs> yields are higher. Maybe to ease a little bit of the the bleeding that's happening with the currency. What do you 
do you have a, any insights as to how they're playing this or kind of what their play is? It seems like a lot of the the concerns and the major stress points in the credit markets have really shifted over into Europe, where initially they seem to be showing up in Japan. So what's your take on this now, Luke? I mean, I, I think they are in the same, you know, two horses, one ass problem where they, they can, they've got to save the bond market, they got to save the currency, and maybe they're taking turns trying to save one and then not the other. I mean, I saw last week, I think the, 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 the JGB tenure didn't trade for three or four straight days. Right. Yeah, so like, yeah. if it's, a, you know, I guess, you know, it's trading by appointment as it is. I do. <laughs> I, which is incredible, right? Cause it's the second biggest bond market in the world. If I'm not mistaken, or at least it used to be the, that's crazy. I think the bigger thing is from this point, the bond markets and the currencies are breaking. And so I think what we're in the very early days of reverting to is I think currencies will start to trade increasingly on import reserve coverage, reserve import coverage, which is a, how many months of imports do you have in FX reserves? Because hmm. once you're out, you are done with a capital D. And if you look at that, what's interesting is a lot of the Asian nations and the Swiss have a lot of import cover, right? Mm-hmm. So the China, the Japanese have 16 months of imports in reserves. Yeah. So they can go a while playing this game. Treasury this is- market ain't going to like it. This but, is effectively like retained earnings for a business. If you have a lot a of retained, yeah, it's like, this is a piggy bank. Yeah. yeah. Break the piggy bank and you can, you know, you can, you know, I lose my job. I got 16 months of, of mortgage and food in the bank, Boom. you know, and that's what this is. Europe has two, the Brits, two months, a little less than two months. Yeah. So like this movie, and again, that's why I say this gets really, this can get really scary, really fast. And I don't think people appreciate that where, you got two months. Okay. So then what do you do? You have, you have three options. You print the money, mm-hmm. which is a kind of what they're doing. Doesn't, you know, you're going to inflate the currency. You go into austerity, which is basically you start starving and freezing people. That's not going to be popular. And oh, by the way, you can do that when you're not wildly over indebted, which they all are. And, and because it's austerity when you're wildly over indebted is nominal default. Bond market's actually not going to like that it, it, almost as much as it doesn't like printing. Or you call, you start buying energy in your own currency. You leave the dollar system. You go, I can't take it. And if my choice is print and starve or austerity and starve or call Russia and say, fine, we'll buy, in, we'll, buy in, we'll buy energy in pounds. We'll buy energy in euros and we'll let's sign a deal and we'll encourage the Ukrainians to do the same. And but I, but, I, but I Russia's don't. not even accepting it. In, they're, they're wanting it in ruble or gold or Bitcoin, right? Those they are the have, three. They said this summer, they said they would accept, they would buy the currencies of friendly nations. And if they're selling energy and buying the currencies of friendly nations, there's, that is functionally no different than selling oil and gas in those currencies. Yeah. And I think that's what this whole thing is all about. I oh, think yeah. This no whole doubt. thing is about moving to a multilateral and basically multi-currency settlement of energy. I think yeah. that's what this is all about. And that's what partly ties back to why I think this is partly why the Fed has been weaponized is I think the core crux of this war is Russia's trying to do this and we're trying to stop it. So do you, do you think the U.S., well, do you see Europe doing that based on the pressures that you know that they're going to be receiving from the U.S.? I... They're going to have to, right? <laughs> They're going to have to. The only question, I mean, and it, it pains me to say, I've, I've been, 
I've been flip about a number of comments in, in this interview and partly is out of frustration, partly is out of, you know, <laughs> you're my buddy and, and we're having fun and it's, and it's a, a Wednesday night. Right. But it pains me to see the lack of awareness. It's either a lack of awareness or the, the, the leadership of Europe has been compromised in some way that they are acting against the interests of Europe. Yeah, no, I think that I think most people in Europe would agree with that. Yeah. And, and so it pains me because like four months ago, five months ago, I mean, I wrote a report in April where I said Japan has upsized QE or upsized what yield curve control into an, an inflation and energy spike. A major crisis will ensue if the U.S. doesn't follow suit. It was literally the title of the report. It was a long title. And so by April, I was like, duh, guys, hello. The only way out of this is you're going to call up Russia and buy energy in your own currency. You know, it's like, hello, McFly. Hello, McFly. Hello, McFly. And they've just kept running the Weimar Germany economic playbook, all of them. Hey, let's print money and buy energy when we're short energy. Dude, you know how that works out. Well, no, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Okay, good luck. And so we're still at the, okay, good luck stage of this. So mm-hmm. the reason I am somber about it is, is unfortunately, I think the pain is going to get a lot worse in Europe. I mean, I saw, you know, who knows what you see online, right? I started seeing protests in Paris this week, right? There's, there's your yep. first, like, you know, you saw some of the farmer protests in whatever it was, I think Netherlands earlier this summer, whatever. I don't know that that was particularly related to fuel or cost. I think there was a separate issue, but I think we're going to see a winter of unrest and discontent in Europe and in the UK, like we've never seen. And at some point their leaders are going to have to either their leaders are going to have to, or they're going to turn their leaders over you saw so it in fast Italy. that they you made it in Italy's Italy. PM look like Putin, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, and they'll find somebody that will do it. And yeah. that's where I think this is going. So it's ironic as for all the talk about regime change in Russia, it's not going to be regime change in Russia. It's going to be regime change. It's going to be regime change in France and in Germany and in UK and all these places. Because when push comes to shove, people don't like to be cold and they don't like to be hungry and I can't blame them. So I think they're going to have to do that. But again, I'm six, seven months into that recognition of like, they're going to have to do that. And it's like, guys, you're going to have to do that, right? It's like the meme, right? It's like, you're going to price energy on currency, right? You're going to price energy in your own currency, right? And I'm like, you know, I'm like... You're talking you know, the Anakin Skywalker, yeah, 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 uh, Natalie Portman one. I'm yeah. the princess, yeah. Natalie Portman, right? I'm like, guys, like guys. And Europe's like, right? I uh. love that meme. Where does Credit Suisse fit into all this? I don't know. <laughs> I have or, no idea. Or any other bank that, that might pop up, whether it's Deutsche Bank or whatever. It seems like, it seems like a couple of these banks in Europe are just getting torched in their position with sovereigns. And it's, it's going to come to a point where, you know, one of, one of these big banks, these two big to fail banks is, is going to expose the entire disaster that, that is sitting on top of it. Right. Because it's not really necessarily, I mean, the banks are totally screwed, but like the bigger issue is, is up at the next level. I mean, with, with this bailout that recently happened, we didn't even talk about it there in the UK. I mean, the one thing that I read said that their entire pension fund was literally going to zero for the entire UK if they didn't step in and, and perform the, 
the, the backstop with quantitative easing for that market. So, I mean, th- these aren't just cracks. Like, I mean, oh no, these are like, this yeah, this is, is what like, I expected to happen, you know, yeah. back in April when I said, like, hey, they're going to have to pivot. Yeah. The one thing I, d- I don't know anything about Credit Suisse or any of the specifics, I really don't know all the credit aspects of the European banking system. Here's what I have observed that I think is of interest as it relates to this conversation from just a mechanics perspective. And it's this coming out of the 08 crisis, policymakers regulated all these Western banks into buying more safe assets. So in the next crisis, they didn't have to bail them out. They would have these safe liquid assets to sell and that way they don't have to bail them out. So guess what the safe liquid asset is? So in America, the high quality liquid asset, the tier one, it's treasuries. Mm-hmm. It's treasuries. So as this happens, if we do have a recession, if we do have a credit event, we just talked about how out of balance the treasury market is, yeah. how the treasury market is trading like Dogecoin. And well, because it's the same problem that the British pensions had. They're going to have to turn seller to treasury. It's not liquid. The problem's at the sovereign level now. So they're going to sell sell treasuries to raise funds into an illiquid market. It's going to be the same thing. Treasury yields are going to go just like the gilt yields did that day. There's but no buyer. But everybody was operating, as they were doing all this, everybody was operating off of this idea that inflation was always going to be under 2% and they had it, all of it under control. And there wasn't this growing systemic risk being fueled into the markets by pushing everybody further out onto the risk curve. But and and people who have been buying this these bond instruments for 40 years, all they know is that interest or inflation just keeps going down and getting more <laughs> stable and yields just keep going down and we just sit around and we just make a bunch of money year over year. And then all of a sudden the systemic risk that was always there, but finally manifested itself in this breakdown in global cooperation and just-in-time supply chains presented the inflation. And every, it's like everybody forgot in bond markets that the foundation, the keystone to valuation is you have to at least outpace and have a, a better yield than inflation, Right. So if inflation starts ripping at eight percent, and all these things were priced for perfection at at nothing percent, at no inflation, and that that's where it all that's that's how it all comes unglued for people that are trying to piece this together and understand Luke's point, as he's saying that they that all these banks were were safer because they were sitting on all these sovereigns. These were the underlying assumptions that were grossly miscalculated is that inflation was never going to do what it, what it's done. Right. And it reminds me of a, of a conversation I had with, with, with our friend Jeff Booth, right? We, we were talking about his book and, and the fundamental mismatch, a different fundamental mismatch, but it's the same kind of dynamic. And we both tried to set it at the same time, which was like, they're just going to have to fully reserve the debt. That's mm-hmm. all that's going to happen here. Mm-hmm. All we're sitting around doing is waiting for the trigger that forces them to fully reserve the debt. And when mm-hmm. I say fully reserve the debt, what I mean is the Fed puts the euro dollar market on its balance sheet, mm-hmm. like in three months. When or you know, there's other ways you can do it. I mean, the Fed could also the Treasury could instruct the Fed to to revalue gold to U.S. official gold to $31 trillion. 
I don't know what that works out to per ounce, but it's a lot. And by doing that, that creates a deposit into the Treasury General account. This is in the Fed's operating manual. You can go find it. And then the, the, the Treasury can take the money and buy back all the debt. And the U.S. Mm-hmm. government will be debt free. Mm-hmm. Voila. Gold will probably have six figures, but you will be out of debt, right? I mean, the debt, <laughs> you, you will get every dollar you're paid. I promise. It's going to buy you two eggs, but it's, you know. <laughs> but they, this whole system was a giant put option call option. It was a giant bet that inflation would never come. And once to your point, it's a critical point you made is once inflation came, they have to get it down or else they're going to have to reserve the whole system. They're going to have to reserve all the debt. They're going to have to buy it all. It will all get sold to them. So for them to, when I look at the gold market and I look at can I make can I make one other point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So they're gonna have to res- if they don't get inflation down, they're gonna have to reserve the full debt. The problem is, is they let debt. They waited too long to do this, and they let get to, debt get so high after COVID, and they never reformed all these Western entitlements, etc. That the actions they need to take to get inflation down presents credit risk to these sovereigns. Yeah, nominal credit risk. You won't enormous, get paid. Enormous credit. Risk. And so they're, they're done either way. The only option is right now they're feigning that they're going to let credit risk happen to sovereign. It's not going to happen. They can't do austerity. They're going to have to fully reserve the debt. Sorry. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So then when you look at the, the, the gold playbook, which you're saying is, is a published approach, how do they do this without just, how, how do they do it in an orderly kind of way? <laughs> and and sorry, I'm not trying. I'm not I'm trying to make qu- at you. I'm laughing with you. I'm not laughing. You, you're gonna be laughing. How do, how do they do it in an orderly way? And then I th- I think the thing that especially people out of traditional finance that maybe look at the whole Bitcoin thing and just roll their eyes and don't don't take it seriously. How do they how do they try to implement that with? saving by, by doing it to save the dollar and to save other fiat currencies that would, that would attempt something similar when you have this elephant in the room called Bitcoin that is already backed. I mean, the whole thing is that it's backed by encrypted energy and that you're literally turning energy into monetary units that nobody can control. And when we look at the gold market and we look at how much of it is levered via paper, and how much distrust, especially for millennials and younger generations, have for that particular market, myself included. I just don't see them buying this. So, okay, so you so you put a bunch of metal into a into a vault, and you're saying that the that the ratio is now this to the, the number of ounces that are there, and you're not actually solving. And I think this is really key to to the argument here, Luke. They're not solving the fundamental issue, which is you're not allowing the deflationary forces that actually happen from all this technology growth to actually manifest itself into the market. Okay. By sticking a bunch of, of metal into a into a vault and saying that the the ratio to paper to this metal sitting in this vault is now this, it's three to one instead of one to one, or you know, whatever ratio you want to throw out there, it doesn't solve the fundamental issue of allowing the deflationary effects of technology to, to enter the market. So you're still going to have to debase against that hunk of metal in the vault, right? Yeah. So I think the way it fixes is a strong word, but it, 
right now, and this gets to Jeff Booth's book, which is brilliant, right? Which is the fundamental mismatch between the deflationary impacts of technology and the necessary inflationary forces you need to keep the debt sustainable. And, and so this at least fully reserves the debt because it, the deflationary impacts of technology are making this debt unpayable, right? So mm-hmm. then you're back to the discussion, you know, inflate or die. It's, it's default or inflate. If you inflate and buy back all that debt, right? Now there's no debt. Mm-hmm. You're from an equity position. You can then let those deflationary forces run their natural course from this higher price level without running the risk of bankrupting the system. But, but, but the equity hasn't been reset, right? It will, be, it will after, after you do that, right? In theory, you wipe out the debt. Yeah, but the equity, inflation. But as, as far as the ownership of the equity, you're not wiping that out at all. No. And, and those are still the same people that are going to go out and they're going to play the Wall Street game of levering up under this new monetary system the same way that they just levered up before because you're dealing with the same entities controlling that equity that are acting irresponsible and just levering their relationship and, and their close proximity to the printer in the first place. It depends. In theory, you would think that this inflationary would move power from those people to those closer to the oil well and the crop and the making of things. And, and that I, I think we're seeing that that goes back to the yeah. point of, Hey, this is the sovereign debt boys against the energy boys and the energy boys are winning it going away. It's like Bama against St. Mary's school of the blind right now. The, so are yeah. they playing Tennessee? Are they playing Tennessee? Yeah, are they playing Tennessee? Officials might be able to help them out a little. No, the <laughs> that's that's the key, right? Is your your point's exactly right? But I think the process of doing that, I think we're watching in real time. It goes back to the Zoltan quote of, "We've had a Putin moment, and not a Volcker moment." And so power is shifting from paper to stuff as I, we speak. To I energy, like how we, and that. I like how he phrased this. He said, not just gold, but I think all forms of commodities. And so for like me, I'm a hardcore Bitcoiner. I see that as, you know, Sailor would describe it as a pristine commodity that actually has absolute scarcity, has absolute scarcity, unlike a, a commodity. And so let's just say that the gold, what you're describing plays out. I think what you then get yourself into is this competitive on a global scale, you have this competitive store of value unit that everybody's trying to decide what, what they trust the most to not be debased or to be manipulated against. You know, gold is going to have paper units stood up on top of it always because of the limitations of, of physical gold and you know, the divisibility. I think it'll come it. back to the energy, though. I think that's, yeah. I think what's really important is that it'll come back to the energy of, and this is something a lot of classical econ- economists are still missing, right? Is big time. Well, the, the, the euro's down. The euro's down. They've gotten more competitive. No, they haven't. Their energy costs are so high that their industry's shutting down. Yeah. And so when you think about it that way, so dense. Again, it speaks to energy being the primacy, not debt. Thank you. Not the fiat currency. And so on the other side of however this all plays out, I think you're going to see the incentives based on experience, which was the experience of mankind going back millennia, which is 
whoever has the cheapest energy wins. wins. And how do you have the cheapest energy? Two things, strong currency and productivity. What does Bitcoin do? It, it, it increases or it incentivizes productivity increases. A deflationary currency or deflationary reserve asset incentivizes productivity increases. And, you know, gold, yeah, they can stack paper on it. But at the end of the day, if once a quarter or once a month, the oil supplier says, uh-uh, I want physical and I want physical at this rate, that's going to be your price. And the U.S. used to fly a plane, I think it was monthly to Riyadh, full of bullion. It can be done. Like, you know, if people's like, oh, it's a lot of shipping. You know, we ship a lot of water everywhere on trucks, too. We only got 25 days of diesel left and we're still shipping friggin' water on trucks. Go, you know. There's sillier things. Meanwhile, we got Nobel laureates out there saying debt is money we owe ourselves. Professor Fax Machine is is the uh, quote on that. Did he say it tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Debt is money we owe ourselves. Yeah, I I took issue with something he said a couple weeks ago about the the, the great, Britain can't have a currency crisis. They they owe debt in their own currency. It's like, yes, technically that's true, but they're short energy, dude. I assure you they can have a currency (laughs) crisis. It's, it's amazing how people that just spend their life in, in an academic setting that have not participated in real functioning markets can kind of just get totally, they can dupe themselves into thinking that, that this is a real economy and boy, oh boy, it's, it's going to be a shell shock for a lot around the world thinking that they can just take these, these imaginary units and just funnel them into somebody's digital, you know, web browser. And all of a sudden, like that means that they should have physical, real quantifiable energy intensive things in their lives. And boy, oh boy. Yeah. We're watching that play out as we speak. It's like, Hey, it's crazy. I think that's the crux of the Ukraine conflict is, it Hey, is. we want to pay you in currency. It's going to fall eight to 10% per year against your oil. That's fine. I'll take it. And then I'm going to put it in gold. Like, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. No, wait. You know, <laughs> then I'm not okay. sending it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, and then I, exactly. I'll leave it in the ground. Well, you can't do that either. Now what? You know, all right. Well, here we are. I mean, it's, you know, it's crazy. politics by another means, right? Luke, tell people about your newsletter. It's beyond phenomenal. Both of your books, which are there behind you, give people a handoff to some of your stuff. Cause I mean, it's just, it's top notch. Thank you. Yeah, you can find out more about, we have institutional and mass market products at fftt-llc.com. You can find out more about it there. And I've got an active Twitter feed at, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Luke, always a pleasure. I really look forward to these. I just pray that you keep saying yes whenever I reach out. <laughs> You're too kind. I, I, I really enjoy our conversations. It's, it's always fun. So thanks again. thanks again for having me on again. Likewise, sir. All right. Have a great night. Thanks. You too, my friend. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So Anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.